Today on Peace Talks Radio, the nonviolent path of Cesar Chavez. Farm workers in Delano, California, have begun an unprecedented strike in the Central Valley. A conversational profile of the late Cesar Chavez, co-founder of the United Farm Workers Union, and tireless advocate for labor rights, civil rights, and the power of nonviolence. You've got to get out there with a picket sign and, and get some action going. And when you put all of those things together, then nonviolence works. Our guests are UFW co-founder Dolores Huerta. By the time that uh, the farm workers uh, and Caesar arrived in Sacramento, there were 10,000 people there. Chavez scholar Jose Antonio Orozco. His training, I think, from the labor movement was necessary to think about how to shift forces and balances of power. And Texas community organizer Juanita Valdez-Cox. If we leave the problem, then we can be part of that solution. The Nonviolent Path of Cesar Chavez, today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or how we reduce conflict between ourselves and others at home, in the workplace, at school, in our neighborhoods, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also profile the great peacemakers, doing the work today or throughout history. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today a conversational profile of Cesar Chavez who, along with Dolores Huerta, founded the United Farm Workers Union in the early 1960s, and who made the pursuit of fair labor practices, civil rights, and nonviolence his life's work before his death in 1993. A boycott of table grapes that began in California eventually drew 17 million supporters across the country forcing growers to agree to some of the first farm worker contracts in history. Where there had once been despair, Caesar gave workers a reason to hope. What impressed me was him believing that as farm workers, I could do something really to have an impact on our lives. He believed that he saw something in all of us before we saw it in us ourselves. In Cesar's office, he had a picture of Gandhi and he had a picture of, of King. Cesar read everything on Gandhi that he could find. Uh, many of the uh, methods that we used uh, to, to, com- to combat violence was, again, uh, following Gandhi's. And so part of what he was doing was trying to get us to change our attention from our own lives and in our own problems and to realize that we don't have to be alone in the struggles that we have and the sufferings that we undergo on a day-to-day basis. We can change them and we can change them with one another's help. Today, Carol Boss will be talking with Cesar Chavez colleague and friend Dolores Huerta. Also, Oregon State University scholar Jose Antonio Orozco, author of the book Cesar Chavez and the Common Sense of Nonviolence. Later, we'll hear from Juanita Valdez-Cox, who grew up in a migrant farm-working family in Texas and recalls when Cesar Chavez brought the UFW movement to her state. Chavez himself was born in Arizona in 1927, His family lost its home in the Great Depression and moved to California to work the fields with other migrant workers. President Barack Obama tells more of the story when he dedicated the Cesar Chavez National Monument October 8, 2012, in Keene, California. Cesar wasn't easy on his parents. He described himself as caprichoso, capricious. His brother Richard had another word for him. Stubborn. 
By the time he reached seventh grade, Caesar estimated he had attended 65 elementary schools, following the crop cycles with his family, working odd jobs, sometimes living in roadside tents without electricity or plumbing. It wasn't an easy childhood, but Caesar always was different. While other kids could identify all the hottest cars, he memorized the names of labor leaders and politicians. After serving in the Navy during World War II, Caesar returned to the fields. And it was a time of great change in America, but too often that change was only framed in terms of war and peace, black and white, young and old. No one seemed to care about the invisible farm workers who picked the nation's food, bent down in the beating sun, living in poverty, cheated by growers, abandoned in old age, unable to demand even the most basic rights. But Caesar cared. And in his own peaceful, eloquent way, he made other people care too. Oregon State University's Jose Antonio Orozco researched how Cesar Chavez learned to care for his 2008 book about Chavez for the University of New Mexico Press. When Cesar was asked, like, who was really your inspiration for learning about nonviolence, he always pointed back and said that it was his mother and the practices of his mother. She would, uh, uh, at that time, would try to prepare meals for homeless people in the community. She would do try to do acts of charity and so forth. And so from a very early age, he says that he was... Uh, uh, brought up in the idea of service to people who were needy. Jose Antonio, you mentioned two life-altering encounters that Cesar Chavez had, one with Father Donald McDonald, who was a parish priest and a labor organizer. And you said that he instigated Cesar's love of reading and passion for nonviolence. So one of the, the um, individuals that Cesar met through the books was St. Francis of Assisi. When he finally met uh, Father McDonald, the idea was that uh, he was f- brought into kind of a formal education and the kinds of practices that he had already been doing. And so learning about St. Francis, he started learning about what it means to deepen those practices of nonviolence and how that ties into the question about faith and the love of God. Uh, but it was something that he had already been living from an early childhood through his mother's practices, uh, this kind of a folk Mexican-American Catholicism, which was really, really deep in his family. Is there anything about St. Francis's story that we might need to know to understand the connection to peace and nonviolence? Some don't know that story. I, I think that was something that was uh, really impactful for Cesar about St. Francis was the connections to uh, nature and to uh, animals in particular. So St. Francis always believed that it was important to, in some sense, right, commune with nature and to think of nature as a living, breathing, whole system, uh, sort of a pre-kind of ecological consciousness, and to think about nature as a, a being that we must uh, uh, be in relationship with, and that animals are themselves sentient beings who have personalities and lives and thoughts that we can take into account in our own lives. And I think that this impacted Cesar into under, 
understanding and appreciation that nature is not just natural resources, but it's something that we have to take into account. It's something that nourishes us, that feeds us, that is part of our own lives and bodies. And uh, I think, quite frankly, this probably affected his own decisions later on in life to become a vegetarian. He was quite honored uh, uh, later on in life for um, emphasizing that a peaceful, nonviolent life means one about treating animals well and humanely in various ways. And so for him, that meant that he had to become a vegetarian. It sounds like also that there was something about his readings of St. Francis and also Gandhi that really impacted him. Yeah, I think that part of it was is that he saw a connection, uh, a much greater connection uh, from his own experiences to these other uh, uh, folks around the world. He was able to see uh, this kind of idea of service to the least advantaged in society was something that was part of a much broader human experience. And from Gandhi and from reading Thoreau, he was also able to see that this was a political practice, and this was more than just about charity, but it was about trying to understand how power structures create uh, disadvantaged people and uh, that we can work to change those power structures. Cesar Chavez also met Fred Ross, who was an organizer, who became his, I guess, lifelong friend and mentor, and he, and he hired him to be an organizer. Yeah, the story uh, that, uh, uh, in terms of how they met, was uh, is really a, a great one. Fred Ross was an organizer with an organization called the Community Services Organization, uh, that was uh, 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 an offshoot of the Saul Alinsky groups back in Chicago. And the job of the community service organization was to help organize urban Mexican-Americans in California uh, to do voter drives and to organize, to protect themselves against police brutality in California and uh, also just to get involved in uh, city politics. Fred Ross was sent out as an organizer into... Um, the barrio Sal Si Puedes, which means uh, get out if you can, which was near San Jose, California. And Cesar Chavez was a young man at the time, and he sort of styled himself, he said at the time, as a young pachuco thug. And uh, they heard that there was some white man walking around the neighborhood talking to people, and uh, they were trying to figure out who he was because they were used to social workers and police officers coming into town and disrupting things, and so they were trying to figure out who this guy was. And so Fred Ross organized a uh, house meeting, which was one of the tactics that uh, uh, the CSO tried to get, is get people together in the house of, of, a, of a neighbor or someone in the community and talk about the ways in which they could get together to organize, to take power, and to control their own lives. And so uh, they heard that uh, Fred Ross was having a house meeting, and, and he and uh, Cesar Chavez and some of his friends said, hey, well, what we'll do is we'll go to this meeting, and then uh, Cesar Savage said, I'll, I'll give a signal. When I give the signal, then we're going to mess this guy up. And so they went to the house meeting, and, how, and Fred Ross started talking about a case of police brutality in Los Angeles that was very notorious at the time, where the police had beaten several Mexican-American uh, uh, prisoners in the, in the city jail and had gotten away with it. And uh, Fred Ross was telling them, look, this, uh, there, there are ways that we can deal with this. We can take care of this. And Cesar Chavez said that his friends were waiting for him to give the signal so that they could mess this guy up. And Cesar found that he was instead really interested in what Fred Ross had to say. Uh, he had never thought that there could be a possibility of 
uh, community members doing something to protect themselves against police brutality, of taking control of the city politics, of being able to change their circumstances. And so he said uh, later on that he never gave that signal because he wanted to hear what Fred Ross had to say. And after Fred Ross finished talking, Cesar said he was he signed up immediately because uh, he figured that it was better to try to... Uh, uh, become an organizer than to continue his life as a uh, as a pachuco thug. Someone else who joined the community service organization was Dolores Huerta. She told Carol Boss that's how she met Cesar Chavez and how they began their historic journey together. I was a volunteer. Uh, Cesar uh, was a staff person. What we had in common was that we were both concerned about the condition of farm workers. And eventually uh, that joint uh, care that we had is what eventually led us to leave uh, the community service organization because uh, they uh, didn't want to support uh, an effort to organize farm workers. Although we had planned it in advance, we thought we had everybody's approval. When it came to our convention, uh, they voted it down. So both Cesar and I left uh, the community service organization to start the farm workers union. So when you were when you first met, what was it about 1955 or so? Uh, yes, I joined the organization in 55. I think he had joined uh, the year before that. What, what would you say were some of those formative moments you both thought it was important to organize farm workers? Well, we know that although the conditions of the Latinos and Mexican-Americans in the cities was um, pretty bad, the, the conditions of the farm workers was very, very bad. So uh, this is why we decided to, uh, well, at some point, um, I came to the realization that um, the farm workers needed a union. And, of course, Esther came to the same realization. And uh, we were still in CSO. Uh, thinking about, well, if they do not support this uh, pilot program to organize farm workers, then we'll just leave. And at that point, uh, and, and I remember those words, uh, like they're just uh, <laughs> say, written in my mind where he said, if we don't start a union for farm workers, they will never have a union. And then he said in the next breath, but we will not see a national union in our lifetime. And I said, why Cesar? He said, because the growers are too rich, they're too powerful, and they're too racist. Did he talk early on about nonviolence? Uh, th- yeah, that was interesting uh, because both Cesar and myself had uh, both read Gandhi. And, of course, when I met Cesar, I didn't know that he had read Gandhi. And uh, that was another point that we had in common. And uh, just the whole idea of everything that Gandhi did uh, in India uh, to, you know, overturn the British rule of India, but he did it through nonviolence. So, uh, we, you know, we both had that commitment. And, of course, in the farmworkers' movement, uh, many of the uh, methods that we used uh, to to com- to combat violence was again uh, following Gandhi's. I mean, the march that we did when we marched from Delano to Sacramento, it was not a march. We called it a pilgrimage, and uh, we called it a pilgrimage because we wanted the farm workers uh, to not think in terms of uh, vindictiveness or revenge, but to think more in terms of uh, prayer, offering, sacrifice. Uh, when we did the, our fast, of course, Cesar was very well known for the fast that he did. He did three fasts. His first fast was for 25 days uh, dedicated to nonviolence, and that was here in Delano, California. Uh, his second fast was in Arizona, another 25-day uh, water only, by the way. Uh, all he t- took was water and, and Holy Communion. The third fast that he did was a 36-day fast, and that one he did against the uh, use of pesticide. But the way that he framed it is he, he said that I'm doing this fast, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, I'm doing this fast 
uh, to take away the hatred out of the hearts of the of the of the growers, and also if there is hatred in the in the in the hearts of the farm workers, then I want that also to be removed. In the summer of 1965, it seemed like strike fever was sweeping California, and I wanted to ask you to describe the scene in the meeting halls on the day of the vote to walk out of the vineyard in that summer. And I do want to add to that question because uh, a lot of people think, oh, well, uh, Caesar strolled to the fields or went into a field to talk to farm workers, and everybody came out on strike. It didn't happen that way at all. We started organizing farm workers in 1962 uh, when we left the community service organization, and uh, the strike did not start till 1965. During those three years, there was a lot of painstaking organizing, you know, meeting with farm workers in their homes, meeting with families, convincing them that they had power, convincing them that they could make changes, convincing them that if they didn't do this, nobody was going to do it for them. So in 1965, when the strike happened, the workers were already organized. We also had service programs where we we started a credit union for the farm workers, the first one in the whole history of the United States for farm workers. And, uh, you know, we helped people with immigration uh, work that they needed, income taxes, uh, any kind of issues that they had to do with law enforcement. So we built a very strong base. So when we had that big meeting in 1965, since the Filipino farm workers came out on strike, then we had to support them. But it was, of course, very thrilling when uh, we got the workers together. And, uh, you know, then they, you know, had, they had to take a strike vote. And they, when they did, of course, it was very exhilarating. It sounded like cries of strike literally rocked the meeting halls. Well, yes, yes, it did. Yes, it did. And it was very uh, scary for the workers, too, because you're talking about people that were very poor. Uh, when we went out on strike in 1965, the wages for the farm workers were like 90 cents an hour. And uh, the, the initial strike, we said we're going to strike for $1.25. And uh, before, within a couple of months, the growers raised the wages to $1.25. Uh, but then we knew that the, the real issue was getting recognition, uh, getting the rights so that the workers could have representation, uh, so that they could have uh, uh, collective bargaining agreements, which really bound the growers legally. Uh, not only could they raise the wa- had to raise the wages, and the workers could negotiate their wages, but that they also uh, had to provide other benefits like drinking water, toilets, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, uh, things that the workers did not have, that, you know, uh, protections against. Uh, uh, when they would be fired unjustly or, you know, laid off when they shouldn't have been laid off. So they needed additional protections, not just wages. And that's what a collective bargaining agreement is between employers and their workers. And that's what we were shooting for, uh, getting something that was enforceable by law, and it couldn't just be taken away. Of course, that strike grew into a national boycott, and um, you directed that national boycott, didn't you? Well, we actually... I split it up into regions. I uh, ran the boycott from Chicago to New York, from Canada uh, to Florida, uh, on the on the East Coast. And uh, after we were, able, and then we had uh, other people that ran it on the West Coast. But we were able to get the East Coast clean of grapes. And then I came back and I uh, and then I took over the boycott on the West Coast also. And I, I, that's another. Uh, when we think of the boycott, we have to think of that as a nonviolent economic strategy. Because since we couldn't win in the fields, you know, we were getting arrested. 
they had these court injunctions on us that limited the number of pickets that we could have uh, at a thousand acre field, only five people to a field, so that the strike breakers couldn't even see us. And that's why we had to go to the boycott. But it is an unviolent way of uh, you know bringing people, to, say, in, in this case, bringing the growers to the negotiating table once they couldn't sell their grapes. We'll continue to vote and get people to vote, but really, really, there's another place we can vote and be extremely successful, and that's the marketplace. Later in his life, Cesar Chavez addressed a community group about the power of the boycott. And so we said, why go to the politicians? Why not, why not go directly and vote at the marketplace where you can put direct pressure on those corporations that can find a solution for you? That, we recommend that. That we've long, we live long enough to know that it works. You see, we hear that, the old cliche that politics makes strange bedfellows. Boycotts make stranger bedfellows still. We can learn a lot from Dr. King and from Gandhi. You know, when, on, the, on the bus boycott, there was no way in the world that those blacks could have ever wanted politically. They couldn't. Politically, they didn't have any power. And they came up with the idea of the boycott. And the boycott began to work. Gandhi's boycotts, some were tremendous boycotts, some were strokes of geniuses. And they bring the whole country without war. We just missed it because people were, there wasn't a shitty war, so that's not important. But we should reflect on those instances when things were done without a shooting war. Those are important things to reflect on, understand, and appreciate, and try to replicate. When things get done without a shooting war, that's what we should try to replicate, says Cesar Chavez in a talk late from his life, posted to YouTube. We have a link on our website, peacetalksradio.com. We'll have more from all of our guests on this program when we return on this special edition of Peace Talks Radio, The Nonviolent Path of Cesar Chavez, more after this break. This is a Peace Talks Radio special, The Nonviolent Path of Cesar Chavez. We have more at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss. Cesar himself worked for 20 years as an organizer without a single major victory. Think about that. We're hearing more now from President Barack Obama's dedication of the Cesar Chavez National Monument in Keene, California in October of 2012. But he refused to give up. He refused to scale back his dreams. He just kept fasting and marching. 
and speaking out, confident that his day would come. And when it finally did, he still wasn't satisfied. After the struggle for higher wages, Caesar pushed for fresh drinking water and workers' compensation, for pension plans and safety from pesticides, always moving, always striving for the America he knew we could be. More than anything, that's what I hope our children and grandchildren will take away from this place. Every time somebody's son or daughter comes and learns about the history of this movement, I want them to know that our journey is never hopeless. Our work is never done. I want them to learn about a small man guided by enormous faith in a righteous cause, a loving God, the dignity of every human being. I want them to remember that true courage is revealed when the night is darkest and the resistance is strongest, and we somehow find it within ourselves to stand up for what we believe in. Caesar once wrote a prayer for the farm workers that ends with these words, let the spirit flourish and grow so that we will never tire of the struggle. Let us remember those who have died for justice, for they have given us life. Help us love even those who hate, so we can change the world. Our world is a better place because Cesar Chavez decided to change it. Let us honor his memory, but most importantly, let's live up to his example. Carol Boss continues her conversation with Oregon State University professor Jose Antonio Orozco author of Cesar Chavez and the Common Sense of Nonviolence. In your book, you say the Delano grape strike serves as the context for Cesar to develop his tactics and his vision of nonviolent direct action. Well, the, uh, the, the Delano strike was really the, the sort of the initial uh, uh, struggle for the burgeoning uh, United Farm Workers uh, that uh, started in, uh, you know, 1962, 1963. Uh, Cesar Chavez was an organizer for Fred Ross's organization for about 10 years. And so he had uh, stability as uh, an organizer. He had a, a steady income and uh, a house and a car and uh, several children to take care of. And what's the striking thing about Cesar Chavez is that Cesar Chavez decided to give all of that up to try to form the farm workers. So he gave up all of this stability and security to try to work for people that he felt were being ignored even by an organization like uh, the Community Services Organization. So he, he sort of fits this kind of uh, story of, uh, of the self-made man, uh, the person who takes a risk and risks it all uh, to try to uh, fulfill a quest, and the quest was working for the social justice of the, the farm workers. And so he gave that all up, and for about two years or so, he and, and uh, Helen Chavez's wife and Dolores Huerta worked together with no money other than the savings that they had put together to try to build a farm worker union uh, uh, amongst the Filipino and the Mexican-American workers in the Central Valley of California. The grape strike was, in some sense, their first effort to build solidarity. And what was really unique about the the, the strike, I think, is the way in which it was more than just a, a pure labor strike, but it turned into a social movement. It turned into a rallying call for Mexican-Americans in California to see 
solidarity uh, between the farm workers and young Chicanos and Chicanas in the cities, and uh, also with uh, uh, folks in uh, other parts of the country who started to see that the conditions under which farm workers were uh, struggling with in California, the people who were producing the food that they were eating, uh, were abysmal and that they needed to, uh, as consumers of that food, to uh, get on board. So what I think the grape strike represents is uh, an attempt to try to expand um, uh, labor struggles beyond that into real big social movements that involve students and consumers and intellectuals and the workers themselves into a movement for social justice. Well, uh, what we did, again, organizing uh, people uh, in communities. We had farm workers that went from uh, the farm worker towns all the way to New York City, to Chicago, uh, to Canada. Again, Dolores Huerta. And uh, the farm workers, they would go to churches, uh, speak to people at churches, speak to um, uh, labor union uh, meetings that they had, community organizations, and just uh, getting people to support and not buy, not buy grapes. But more than that, we, uh, organizing people to set up picket lines in front of stores. And when they would picket the stores, all of these volunteers that came out to help us, then uh, the stores would take the grapes out. So eventually we were able to get the major chains uh, uh, to take the grapes out of all of their stores and uh, then get people to stop buying grapes altogether. So it became a huge movement. And so we had millions of people literally all over the United States that stopped eating grapes. And not only the United States, but also in Canada, uh, in Mexico, and of course in Europe. Well, I remember reading, for me, it was a very vivid picture of uh, sit-ins in Chicago right in the middle of a store, inside the store, sit-ins, and these were in the um, big chains. So that that really had to take uh, a, a bit of courage on the part of those who were participating. Yes, it did. And, and many of those that were housewives or they were students, so they were just people out there in the cities, and they came forward to, uh, to support the farm workers. But again, we have to go back to the organizing part of this. It just doesn't, didn't happen. Farm workers went out there and made this happen, you know, by... I say by speaking and recruiting people, getting people to, to, to support us on those picket lines. Uh, so it was very exciting. Could you take us through, let's say, an argument to uh, even one person who you were trying to convince not to buy grapes, someone who really couldn't understand? What, what would you say to them? Well, for the most part, people were very sympathetic, and, and the message was simple. You know, we have farm workers uh, in California are on strike. Uh, farm workers don't have toilets in the fields, uh, they don't have drinking water, uh, they don't have any protections from pesticides, and we need your help. We need your help uh, to support the farm workers so they can get the basic rights that other workers have had for like, you know, since the, since the 30s. These are rights the farm workers do not have. And, uh, and people responded to that. So you were basically asking them to employ empathy. Uh, pretty much. And, you know, people in our country do have good hearts, as we know, but uh, mm-hmm. they, they often they just don't know what the circumstances are. But once they understand what the conditions of the workers were, and when you have farm workers themselves that are telling the story, uh, and people can see in their faces and, and see, you know, hear directly from them, uh, it was a very, very powerful message. In March 1966, that walk 300-mile walk from Delano to Sacramento, California's capital, which was really a way of dramatizing what was already a six-month-old grape strike. And I know that one goal was to stress nonviolence and and make more visible the nonviolent tactics. Why was that an important goal of the march? Well, 
Um, because the history, when you look at the history of labor organizing uh, in the fields of California, it had always been one of violence. You, if you read uh, John Steinbeck's uh, novels, you know, The Grapes of Wrath, uh, the other uh, novels that he wrote about uh, about the early strikes that they had in California, and there was violence and people were killed. And uh, before we started the union, uh, Cesar and myself, we did a lot of research, and we didn't want that to happen again. We, we didn't want uh, the people to turn to violence, either on the part of the farm workers or uh, on the part of the, of, of the growers. Of course, eventually, you know, we did have people that were killed. We had five martyrs uh, that were killed in the farm workers' movement. But, uh, and Cesar, one of the things that he always stressed is that uh, if we turn to violence, we'll use it against each other, you know, so we, we have to stay away from violence. And he, he actually made all, everybody take a standing vow that we would not resort to violence. And that's why uh, when we did that march, it was a pilgrimage. And I remember when we had the meeting to talk about going to Sacramento, many of the farm workers said, well, what do we have to be penitential about? You know, we're the victims. The growers are the ones that are abusing us and, and not, not respecting our work. And then he said, well, let's look at each other and let's look at our families and see, let's think about what have we done that maybe we should ask uh, an apology or forgiveness for. We, everybody, all of us, we all have things that we do to each other that we need to be penitent about. And so, and of course, uh, throughout the pilgrimage, uh, starting in Delano, every single night uh, we had a mass and we had a rally. So the whole spiritual uh, part of the movement was very much a part of the pilgrimage. The other thing was uh, the, the pilgrimage did not go through the big cities. It went through all of, all of the farm worker towns. When the pilgrimage started, as they left uh, Delano, California, there were probably, I would say, 70 to 90 farm workers that started. By the time that uh, the farm workers uh, and Caesar arrived in Sacramento, there were 10,000 people there. We're fighting for recognition, which is the, the real guts of it. It doesn't matter now how much money they're offered. They wouldn't go back because what they want is a union before they go back. This is Peace Talks Radio, and we're talking to Jose Antonio Orozco, author of Cesar Chavez and the Common Sense of Nonviolence. So according to Chava, La Cosa, as the farm workers' struggle was called, it attempted to improve the working conditions, of course, of farm workers, but he also saw it as developing a larger mission over time. I think that uh, Cesar Chavez saw at a certain part that the the reason that uh, the farm workers were struggling was uh, an unequal power balance between the growers and the farm workers. And he started to see that it, it was about various kinds of power inequalities in American society in general. And he started to see, uh, he makes this connection between the violence that he saw when the growers would call the police out or they would hire security to protect the fields and that they would push uh, the farm workers around. He saw connections between that kind of violence that was going on and violence and, uh, in the streets and in, 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 in the riots during the 1960s. And then also uh, the idea of the United States being involved in Vietnam. And so he started to see that there were uh, connections of structural violence uh, around the world and started to put all of this together that 
You know, the reason that the farm workers were struggling was that because agriculture was becoming corporatized and that there were people who were willing to use violence to protect those corporate interests against the interests of the farm workers. The movement gained the support of New York Senator Robert Kennedy, who during hearings by the Senate's Migratory Subcommittee quizzed a local California sheriff about forceful tactics used against the workers. If I have reason to believe that there's going to be a riot started and somebody tells me that there's going to be trouble if you don't stop them, then it's my duty to stop them. And then you go out and arrest them? Absolutely. And charge them? Charge them. What do you charge them with? Uh, Violating uh, unlawful assemblage. Who told you that they're going to riot? The men right out in the field that they were talking to said, if you don't get them out of here, we're going to cut their hearts out. So, So rather than let them get cut, you remove the cause. This is the most interesting concept, I think. The fact that somebody makes a report about somebody's going to get out of order, perhaps violate the law, and you go in and arrest them, they haven't done anything wrong. How can you go arrest somebody if they haven't violated the law? They're ready to violate the law, in other words. But I suggest from the luncheon period of time that the sheriff and the district attorney read the Constitution of the United States. We have to come clearly to the conclusion that an ignored part of our population have been the farm workers. That the farm workers have suffered in our society over the period of the last 30 years, and that that situation has to be changed. So there was a rally, I think it was March 1968, in a park in Delano at the end of um, Cesar's Fast, and there were a a good several thousand people there, and um, Robert Kennedy had flown in to celebrate the end of Chavez's fast. And it was just uh, a week later that he announced he was running for the Democratic nomination for president. He had become your friend. He was the union's friend. Oh, yes. Uh, we worked very hard. We actually knew uh, the, the senator before the fast, um, and uh, he had already done some work for us. He had uh, raised money to for one of our volunteer clinics, and uh, he had been out. Uh, actually, he was in... Uh, Delano, uh, before we started the pilgrimage, he had been there the, actually the, the, a couple of days before to do a hearing. And uh, so he had already been very friendly to us. In fact, the police tried to stop the pilgrimage, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Uh, they went and they were actually had, when the pilgrimage started, there was a whole line of police in front of the, of the marchers. And Senator Kennedy had to call the chief of police and ask him, what did he think he was doing that he was going to try to stop this pilgrimage? It was ridiculous. But... Uh, uh, but he had been very close to us, and of course, we all worked very hard. Uh, we were, you know, doing the campaign for him in Los Angeles and East Los Angeles and South Central Los Angeles, uh, getting people to vote for for Senator Kennedy. Uh, so he had been a very good friend from the very beginning uh, of our movement. And you were on the stage, standing right beside him the night of his winning the California Democratic presidential primary. And of course, that was the unforgettable evening when he was shot. Well, it was it was a huge loss uh, for every for the world, not just for the farmers' movement, but for everybody, because we know that uh, our history in the United States would be very different had he not been assassinated. But uh, we were right in the middle of the of the great boycott uh, during that time, and uh, so we just had to keep moving forward and keep working, and uh, uh, it was a, it was a great loss. More from Dolores Huerta and our other guests when we continue on this special edition of Peace Talks Radio, The Nonviolent Path of Cesar Chavez, back in a moment. 
You're listening to a Peace Talks radio special, The Nonviolent Path of Cesar Chavez. More on this and all the episodes in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002 can be found at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Carol Boss, who now speaks with one of the many people inspired by the work of Cesar Chavez. Juanita Valdez Cox grew up in a migrant farm working family in the Rio Grande Valley in southern Texas. Her father came to the U.S. from Mexico as part of the Brochero program, which allowed Mexican-born workers to enter the U.S. and work under contract to harvest for certain growers. She herself started working in the fields in the late 1950s, when she was just about 10 years old. Being in school for maybe um, six months out of the year and then, and then having to drop out of school to go up north to states like Michigan, where we harvested a lot of uh, cherry, to Ohio, where we did uh, uh, harvested lots and lots of tomato, to New Mexico, traveling most of the summer, following the different crops, so that we could then come back with a little bit of money. And my dad would, uh, he bought like a one-room house, but then every time we would go up north, we would come back and add another room to the house until we had, you know, a two- or three-bedroom home. And that's mainly the life of many of the, of, of the migrants. That's how it was. It was, it was my dad and, and his brothers and, and their family and all of us traveling and then coming back and trying to catch up with, uh, with the rest of the students. You know, with some of the, of the of what we had missed while while up north working in the fields. What were the beginnings? And I'm wondering if your family experienced that of the organizing efforts. My mom and dad, like many other farm workers, joined the union in 1979 when Dolores Huerta, Cesar Chavez, and Fred Ross were organizing this area so that farm workers could have, like you know, toilets in the fields or safe drinking water. Would would ban the use of the shorthand hole. Would um, would have like the minimum wage which at that time was like a dollar forty. So they joined in in uh, in um, in seventy nine. Yeah, I think it was in February. I still have his union um, membership card, and that's why I remember those days. I know there was a big convention that had happened there. It was the it was the first one. That's the one. That's the very first one. It was fabulous, yes. That was a momentous event. Yes, it was. It was. It was hundreds of delegates. It was the very, very first farm worker convention ever in uh, in South Texas, um, and probably in the whole state of Texas. Juanita Valdez-Cox, do you remember seeing Cesar Chavez for the first time? I was volunteering uh, at the union. I remember him telling us some of the things that needed to be done here so that we could win those changes, so that we could make those changes. And I remember telling him, but we don't even have water in our colonia because we didn't have water yet, and we, do, we don't even have paved streets, and we don't have you know, all of the very basic necessities. And him saying, sort of telling us, well, you know, that's up to you. It is, it, is, it is your responsibility. He says, at the end of the day, I can go back to California, and who's going to live without water, and who's going to live without the paved street so that the bus can pick you up for school? At the time, maybe it was, it was like, wow, he thinks we can do it. What impressed me was him believing that as farm workers, I could do something really to have an impact on our lives. He saw something in all of us before we saw it in us ourselves. I don't know, that's sort of confusing, but what I'm trying to say is that he had faith because he had worked with farm workers in California. He knew the power that we could have. And so when he did that, when he told us that, 
and not only one time, but many times over about what we could do. And then when we started to work on it, and then we started to win, and then we started to totally believe and said, you know what? He's absolutely right. If we help fit this world, we have a lot of power, and we also need to have the respect. There are many wonderful memories of changes that have been made, but, but they also have come through a lot of sacrifice and some scars that remain, you know, in people's hearts and memories for, um, for a lifetime. But it's something that has to be recognized by everyone is that those that are in the fields that bring those food to, to the stores, we need to think about them every time we eat because it is because of them. And so we need to make sure that, that we work so that the laws that are now effective are, um, are respected and that they are enforced. Can you talk briefly about the forces that moved you and inspired you to do the work that you're doing for your organization now? You're the executive director, I believe, of, um, of Lupe, which is La Union de Pueblo Entero, Union of All the People? Yes. In other words, talk about how, you, in a sense, you're carrying on the work of um, Cesar Chavez and United Farm Workers. I think that, you know, through all of the valuable lessons, not only from Cesar and Dolores, but from um, the farm workers themselves, willing to take a risk and say things have got to be different. We've got to work towards uh, changing some of these laws. We've got to make life better for our um, for our children. Uh, some of the, uh, the same, you know, philosophy uh, that Cesar has ca- still carries on. It's part of our culture and the work that we do is learning from from the work that they did, learning and, and respecting what they did to bring us up to this point and feeling a responsibility of making sure that, that it is uh, moved into the future, that while there still remains uh, injustices in the fields or in the communities, that we've got to continue this work that they, be, that they started, that it is on their shoulders that we stand. All of our programs here at Lupe, for example, one of the big core values is self-help. And we just believe that if, you, if we leave the problem, then we can be part of that solution because we know it, we feel it, and we are going to feel the impact of the change. And therefore, we've got to be involved. That's Juanita Valdez-Cox who continues to look out for farm workers' issues in the South Texas area where she grew up in a migrant farm working family in the 1950s and 60s. What's interesting is that typically uh, when you talk about nonviolence, you have this kind of litany of heroes that are engaged in nonviolence. So people will say, oh yeah, Tolstoy, Thoreau, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and sometimes they'll mention Chavez or, or Dolores Huerta. But uh, I think that Chavez uh, offers a, a in, in his practice and, and the way he talked about nonviolence was very, very different from the way in which, for instance, Gandhi and Martin Luther King thought about the effectiveness of, of nonviolence. More now from Carol Boss's conversation with Jose Antonio Orozco, Oregon State University professor and Cesar Chavez scholar. Gandhi's nonviolence was uh, based on this uh, sort of Hindu principle of ahimsa or nonviolence. And for Gandhi, that meant that when you practice nonviolence, it's an all-encompassing worldview about not harming another individual. And so that means that you try to engage in not harming anyone mentally, spiritually, and physically. 
And practically speaking, that meant that when Gandhi would organize a, a protest or a demonstration or an act of civil disobedience, he thought it was very important for the protesters to uh, inform the authorities thoroughly about what they were planning to do. So uh, there was pre-notification of what was going to be going on, how the protesters were going to be engaging in civil disobedience, so that there were no surprises, that there were no secrets, and that everyone was above board, but that they would know that civil disobedience was going to take place. And for Gandhi, this he believed that this was important to be completely transparent in your actions to those who you consider to be your opponents. Chavez was much different than that. Uh, he believed, I think, what we might call more in a, in a politics of disruption, um, tactics that would be disruptive to the status quo, that would get tension going on, uh, but were not necessarily all above board, so to speak. So, for instance, during the grape strike, the, uh, the farm workers engaged in what was called planes de tortuga, which uh, translates to uh, uh, turtle plans. Um, and so what this meant practically was that farm workers would uh, plan to work very slowly in picking the grapes. And as anyone who's ever uh, uh, worked in grape harvest knows that the temperatures in the valley in California get very, very hot and grapes are very, very fragile. And if they're not picked at the right time in the right way, uh, they can be essentially just useless uh, uh, for production. And so what the farm workers would do, would they would work very slowly and not, um, uh, not harvest as quickly as necessary, threatening to destroy uh, many growers' harvests. And the attempt here was to try to uh, coerce the, worker, the growers to come to contracts. Uh, another tactic was something that they called submarinos, submarines, in other words, uh, because in many cases the, the farm workers had been prohibited from picketing near the farms uh, and near the growers' uh, homes. Uh, they didn't have any access to the workers in the fields uh, to try to organize them to join the union. So what frequently what they would happen is they would send a submarine in, that is someone undercover, uh, a, a union member, who would go in and start working at a, uh, at a grower's field, claim that they were not a union member, and then get in and start working to organize the members in the field. And so it was all in secret, and it was all not above board, but it was an attempt to try to uh, get underneath the legal injunctions that were preventing them from talking to uh, farm workers. Uh, and finally, I think that some of the tactics that you started to see in the East Coast particularly uh, were very, very disruptive uh, during the, the grape boycott. Uh, I've talked to uh, UFW members who said that one of the things that they did, for instance, back in New York, in places like in Long Island and Brooklyn, uh, they would go to uh, Safeway supermarkets, which were one of the uh, grocery chains that was uh, being pressured by the UFW to stop using non-union uh, grapes. And the UFW members would go into the stores and they would uh, start filling up baskets with food so that they were just piled high, high up. And they would go to the cashier and then they would ask the cashier, are the grapes here union? And if the, uh, the cashiers uh, most likely would probably say no, uh, then the UFW members would say, well, then I don't want to shop here anymore, and they would walk out. And what that would do is that they would force then the workers to have to take time to restock all of those items. Uh, and so there were all of these kinds of tactics about disruption, about making sure that the status quo couldn't be the same. 
So Gandhi probably wouldn't have thought that was morally justified. No, any kind of secrecy like that was not treating your opponent uh, uh, with ahimsa. But for Chavez, uh, given that he gay at his training, I think, from the labor movement, it was necessary to think about how to shift forces and balances of power. And he didn't, necess- he didn't believe, of course, in violence, but he did believe that sometimes in order to achieve justice, you have to create tension in a community. You have to create a kind of disruption so that the status quo, which is of injustice, cannot continue. And this is, of course, something that Martin Luther King talked about in his letter from a Birmingham jail, of creative tension necessary to disrupt social te- uh, the, the status quo. Uh, but uh, Chavez was willing to engage in politics that I think uh, Gandhi would not have thought appropriate for a, a person of nonviolence. Can you point to applications today of nonviolence that are based on Cesar Chavez's ideas, his visions, his tactics? The emphasis that Cesar Chavez had in his organizing was a big dedication to helping train people to live in a democratic society. And that means uh, training people to realize that they have a right and they ought to have a say in the uh, uh, the kinds of decisions that will affect their lives. And so Chavez said very often that uh, the, the nonviolent actions and, and civil disobedience ought to be a training school for the people who are involved in those actions. And so he said the picket line, he said, is the greatest school for democracy. Uh, you train people how to work together, how to rely on one another to accomplish common goals together. And so I think that the emphasis that Cesar Chavez had in his forms of uh, organizing uh, direct actions was about making sure that uh, you're trying to accomplish a goal with your action, but also in the process, you're helping people to learn the kinds of skills that they need to work together to develop consensus and to build solidarity with one another. He was always very suspicious, for instance, of revolutionaries in Latin America who talked about overthrowing the power structure and freeing people and liberating themselves. But his question was always, well, what then? What happens after the revolution? What happens when you have removed a dictator through violence? Why doesn't that just simply uh, justify the use of violence again against you if someone disagrees? He said, no, we can't go that route. What we need to do is we need to have training for democracy. And any kind of way in which we decide to shift power has to be one that trains people to live together after the revolution uh, peacefully and to to come to uh, uh, solve conflicts in a nonviolent way. The boycott, the strike has been a costly thing, not only to us, but also to the employers. But I think that because even though how ever unfortunate the experience might have been and the struggle on both sides, that because of that experience, we have created the foundation to what I think is going to be a very good working relationship with the grower community in Delano. So it was in 1970, uh, you got a call from uh, Johnny Giamato, who's part of the, that industry. Negotiations were successful. It was late in the night. Hands were shook, and the room literally thundered with applause and shouts of joy. And I want to read a quote of Cesar's, and I, I want you to, um, if you can, to comment on it. Cesar said, without the help of those millions upon millions of people who believe as we do that nonviolence is the way to struggle, 
I'm sure we wouldn't be here today. The strikers and the people involved in this struggle sacrificed a lot, sacrificed all of their worldly possessions. 95% of the strikers lost their homes and their cars, but I think in losing these worldly possessions, they found themselves. I think it uh, encapsulates uh, what the whole movement was about. And, and uh, also a message for everybody out there that we do have to sacrifice. If we don't sacrifice, then things do not change. And if we do not come together, we do not organize, then all of the justice uh, goals that we want to achieve are never going to happen. This, this is it. We, we've got to come together. We've got to organize, and, and that's the way the change happens. But the sacrificing, the nonviolence, uh, is a very big part of it. In, in fact, it's a, I think it's the foundation. With all of um, all of this experience behind you, what do you have to say about the current state of workers' rights? Well, we know in the United States of America, generally speaking, uh, workers' rights have been eroded and have been taken away from them. Uh, so we have just a very small percentage of our workforce that is now in in the labor union. If we do not have uh, Workers, if workers do not have uh, are not organized into a, a labor organization, which we call a labor union, uh, you don't have a middle class. If you don't have a middle class, you don't have a democracy. And I do want to add one thing to just again, uh, since we do want the the listeners uh, to know what the accurate picture is. Uh, right now, unfortunately, uh, there are not very many contracts in the grape fields. Uh, we have uh, a lot of pesticides on those grapes, and so I would say to folks, if you want to eat grapes, make sure they're organic, okay, and that they don't have pesticides on them. UFW co-founder Dolores Huerta. For the complete versions of our interviews with all of our guests on today's program and a link to the PBS documentary episode called Chicano, The Struggle in the Fields, from which you heard some clips, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com where you can hear this program again and all the programs in our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution dating back to 2002. There also you can sign up for a free podcast and newsletter, order CDs, and help support the series with a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit organization that produces the program, separate and apart from your public radio station. Visit peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, we also receive support from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Nola Daves-Moses is the Executive Director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. (laughs) ¶¶